0: I'm a parent before I'm a pastor. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 3. If you're looking in your pew Bible in the rack in front of you, that's on page 834. 834. Colossians chapter 3 and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 17. we believe that when we hear God's word, uh, God is speaking. When we read God's word, God is speaking. And so one of the ways we show that is by standing together on Sunday morning when we hear God's word read. So please stand. Colossians 3:15 to 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word which speaks to us. And we want to be people who look to Christ as the head of this church and as a result look to his word to guide us and so we pray that that would be true this morning in Christ's name amen when a new pastor comes to a church one of the burning questions that is in many people's minds is what direction is this guy going to take our music in fact when I, uh, when I came here in view of a call and was uh, doing different Q&A times and visiting with different people, that was the question that I got asked the most. I got asked the most questions about, what do you think about music? Where do you think we should be going in terms of music? And Before I begin answering that question this morning, I want to just read a comment that I came across on new church music. It says, <clears throat> There are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. (laughs) Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Now, this is a paraphrase of a track that was written in 1723. The point is, it's nothing new, right? We're dealing with the same things today that have been dealt with for generations. In fact, these, uh, these issues that we often call worship wars, the conflict between what are we doing in our music, these worship wars go all the way back to, I think, the earliest we've been able to find is around the 8th century. You see, uh, prior to that, church music was typified by... Um, Gregorian chant which was sung only in uh, it was a monophonic sound but it was sung also in just one octave so all the men were singing in the same octave and then somebody had the idea well maybe we should allow boys choirs to be added to the Gregorian chant and they will sing in the soprano octave and that begun the first worship war. And then not too long after that, they had the idea of introducing harmony to the monophonic Gregorian chant. A new worship war ensued. And then, after that, after the, there was a, after the Protestant Reformation, um, the, the early Protestant Reformation forbade any instruments from being used in the church. And slowly, because of the size of the churches and keeping meter and things like that, the organ was reintroduced and worship words ensued should we have an organ in church then uh in the united states in the around the 1800s some people uh saw that jazz music was taking off and began to take one of the key instruments of jazz music and bring it into the church for leading music in the church Well, bringing in the devil's instrument sparked a whole new worship war. The instrument, the piano. Then, a little later, around the late 1800s or early 1900s, the young people were getting caught up in the revivalistic songs that weren't in the hymnal. So they had to figure out, what do we do with these newfangled songs that the young people are singing? And so they created what they called a youth hymnal, a little book of youth songs that they could sing in their little youth groups and not have them come into the church. If you look into a youth hymnal of those days, you find songs like Blessed Assurance and To God Be the Glory. Then in the 1960s, as rock and roll started to take off, the... uh, There were certain churches who said, we need to be using some of these sounds and some of these songs in our service. And again, the worship war began. At the center of this, one of the songs, the center of this debate was a song called, He Touched Me, written by Bill Gaither. So, our little history lesson teaches us that there is nothing new about the debates that rage today. It's not a new question for our generation. And it also helps us not make the mistake of thinking that what we're used to is the same thing as what God desires. Right? But my little history lesson certainly doesn't solve the question. How do we sort through music in a church? Where are we going musically within this church? What side of the worship war battlegrounds are we going to land on as a church? Well, for those of you who know me, you probably know what my answer is going to be. If you guys have been hearing me much, you know what I'm going to say. I'm not the head of the church, so who cares what I think? Christ is the head of our church, and we care immensely what he thinks. And so we are going to, if if Christ is the head of the church, what that means is if we want to be following Christ as the head, we need to look to his word to drive the agenda. So the only things that I'm going to care about as a pastor are the things that are clear from the word of God, and we all need to collectively hold loosely those things that aren't made clear from the word of God. And so, what I'm going to do today is take verse 16 of our chapter and make five observations that I think are going to be pretty obvious and transparent for all of us, that I think are, um, that will help us as we think of what we're going to be doing musically here. And what I hope is God, God's word will bring about unity amongst us and create this kind of unity. So, let's look at 3.16. Again, five observations. And the first observation is that the goal of singing is that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Do you see that? That's how it starts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish and as you sing songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the goal of our singing is that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Now, what is this word of Christ? I not. Uh, I'm not. I didn't decide, hey, I need to take a Sunday and teach on singing, and so what verse should I be in? Let's go to Colossians 3.16, and we'll go there. Rather, I'm preaching through Colossians. Most of you know that, but if you're a visitor or haven't been with us very long, I want you to know that. I'm preaching through Colossians, and we're on 3.16. And what's nice is, because we've been preaching through Colossians, when we see the phrase, the word of Christ... We've done the groundwork in Colossians so we know what's being talked about. So look with me at chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. He's talking about how the Colossians initially became Christians, and he talks about at the end of verse 5 there um, that you have already heard about in the word of truth the gospel. That has come to you. So he takes this phrase, the word of truth, which refers to all of Scripture, and he makes it nearly synonymous with the gospel, the good news. And later in verse 7, it talks about Epaphras, who is the one who brought this word of truth, this good news to them. And it says, well, I should start at the end of verse 6, and it says, Since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth, So you have the word of truth, you have the gospel, and you have God's grace in all its truth. And then Epaphras is called a faithful minister of the word of truth, of the gospel, of the word of grace, no, of Christ. So Paul takes all these things and kind of lumps them into the same thing. When I'm talking about the word of truth, I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about God's grace in all its truth. I'm talking about Christ. And then we see the same type of thing in verses, chapter 1 again in verses 25 through 27. Now Paul is talking about what, his goal, what he's about in ministry. And he says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. That is the whole counsel of scripture, right? That's my goal, to present the whole word of God, the full word of God. And yet then he says the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. So the word of God in all its truth is also the mystery. And when we're in that passage we saw the mystery related to how the Old Testament actually points forward to Christ and how Christ makes sense of the Old Testament. But then he says um, in verse, uh, sorry, verse 26 The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. So he says, the whole word of God, the mystery, Christ in you. All the same thing. So what we're finding is Paul has been explaining that what he's giving himself to is explaining the whole Word of God, the full counsel of Scriptures, in a way that points to Christ, that consistently reveals Christ in both Old and New Testament. So, that was a lot of review, but it reminds us when we see this phrase, Word of Christ dwell in you richly, what is it talking about? It's talking about all the Scriptures as they consistently reveal Christ. That's what the word of Christ refers to. Now, I don't think I have to explain as much what dwell in us richly means. Um, I think of, uh, all of us have experiences. Maybe it's, you know, you have some electric first date with somebody or your first time you heard a favorite song or something like that, and it just sticks in your head, you can't shake it, and you're always thinking about it, you're always dwelling on it, right? It's in your heart, it's in your mind. For me, I was never much at basketball. Um, but I did have an early growth spurt, which gave me a little bit of help. And so around sixth grade, I was on the Park District basketball team. And uh, our team was down, we weren't a very good team, and we switched to zone defense, and because we switched to zone defense, we actually were able to shut the other team down and mount a comeback. And here we were down by a point, the end of the game, and I'm in the game, and they pass it to me, and I'm open for a layup. And I go up to lay it in, and all I'm thinking is, I've got to make sure this goes in. So I got the ball right here, about to put it up, and swat the opposing player blocks it away and we lose. I think I thought about that for a year straight. You can't shake it. You're dwelling on it, right? The goal of our time together should be that we are dwelling on the word of Christ. It says in our our passage, in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sit and listen to good expositional preaching. Well, that's what I wish it said. That's probably what we all intuitively think it should say. But that's not what it says. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? If we're thinking, okay, our goal is that the word of, when we go out from this place, the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, we probably are all thinking, okay, that's really the job of the pastor. It's got to be a good sermon. We've got to do good work there so that the word of Christ could dwell in us richly. But that's not where Paul goes. Where Paul goes is to the singing of the congregation. By our singing and how we sing, the word of Christ should dwell in us richly. Now, if you stop and think about it, it actually makes sense because God has specially designed our hearts so that when, we, uh, when there's a song, music strikes a chord within us. And so if you really want to be dwelling on something, to have it in the form of song is a very effective way to cause it to linger in our hearts and minds. But there's some implications of this. We need, if this is true, and I believe it is, we need to take as much care in selecting the lyrical content of the songs we sing as I take in preparing my manuscript for the sermon I'm going to preach. You wouldn't be very happy if I stood up here and in my preaching, filled my sermon with a bunch of spiritual, vague, vague spiritual phrases and ambiguous concepts and nice loose moral imperatives. Go out and live the way you're supposed to live, but without any... Why am I supposed to do that? Where's the gospel behind that? Behind uh, Undergirding it. And so it should be with the lyrics of our songs. We need to be careful... And the lyrics that we select, the measure of whether we're succeeding in what we do in music in this church is, as a result of it, is the word of Christ dwelling richly amongst us. That's the measure. That was my first observation. Now, the second observation might not seem real obvious from this translation, but it's this. Through song, we teach and admonish one another. Now, if you look at verse 16, there's a couple different ways you can take it. Um, but if you look at it, it seems like, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you do two things. Teach and admonish one another and as you sing songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Like, that's two different ways to cause the word of God to dwell in you richly. But... Um, Though that's one way to take the Greek, I just want to read kind of a literal translation of the Greek that's just kind of following the structure. And you'll see, you'll see where I'm going with this. If I was just doing this literally, it would be, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to God. You see where that phrase with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs actually follows teaching and admonishing. And so the most logical way to take their Greek is that, that the way we're to teach one another and admonish one another is with songs, hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now that also makes more sense because there's a parallel verse that Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.19 where he's talking about the very same thing and same concepts. And there he says speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, here it's teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And there, it is speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, the observation is, through song, we teach and admonish one another. Now... um, this is, a, this in our, in our day and age, we've kind of uh, fixated on the fact that when we're, when we're singing songs, when we're worshiping, it's, it's me and God, right? I'm singing to God, which is right, and we're going to see that later. I'm singing to God, so it's, it's just, I need to focus on Him, I need to tune out everything else. And a lot of churches, they'll lower the lights, turn them down real low, and they might even say something like, it's just you and God right now. But that's not what's being taught here. We are actually teaching and admonishing one another through our songs. And songwriters throughout history understand that. Have you noticed how many of our songs that we sing are not directed to God? They're actually spoken to one another. So, most famous, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's declaring truth to each other. We, uh, we sang earlier today... Come, Christians, join to sing. We're calling one another to sing. At the end of our service, we're going to sing, Come, people of the risen King, who delight to sing His praise. Rejoice, rejoice, O Church of God, rejoice. That's speaking to one another. And if you go to the Psalms, you find the same thing. Many of the Psalms are directed to each other, to the congregation. So, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that's within me is, he's actually singing to himself, his soul. And at the end of the psalm, he says, Bless you, all his created works and all his dominion. So it's a call to bless the Lord that's being issued to one another. Or the most famous psalm, Psalm 23. It's not directed to God. It's a declaration of what God has done. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or uh, a psalm that's been gained more popularity after Bono set it to music, Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He, not you, he inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the miry pit. It's a declaration to others of what God has done. So we are actually singing and teaching and admonishing one another through song. Now, I'm not saying, and, and, and we're going to get here later, um, but I'm not saying that we're not singing to God, and that our verse makes clear we sing to God, but there's also a horizontal element to our singing. I learned this lesson really well from Keith Grogan. Keith Grogan was uh, in the singles ministry that I was over, and uh, he was this wonderful man who, at a, at a young age, had suffered some pretty severe brain trauma. So he was very different from the rest of us, and he interacted very differently. And I would uh, occasionally have the opportunity to sit next to him in church. And when you sang with Keith Grogan, he didn't sit and look at the front. He turned and he looked at you, and he sang it to you like, Isn't this the most exciting news you've ever heard? And you're sitting there sitting next to Keith and you just turn and you lock eyes for a split second and you sing these truths to one another and his face is glowing and he's shaking his fist. It stirs your heart like nothing else. I've also experienced this as a parent. I'll be holding my child or standing next to him and I'm singing the song and I'm trying to help them learn how to worship here. So I turn and I'm singing the song to him. Or to her. And all of a sudden the words just take on this new life and this new meaning. Because I'm declaring these truths to my child. I think that's some of the vibe that we should feel when we worship together. If all it is, if all it is is you and God. Do it in the shower. Do it in your car. But this is a place we gather together. And we declare these things mutually. We're affirming these things together. How glorious. How glorious to hear all the voices within this room declaring and saying it is true for me in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my cornerstone, my solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. There's something about us declaring that together as one voice that is different than what happens when I sing along with the Gettys in my car. Now, one one implication of this is that we all must sing. We're being called to teach and admonish one another. Let me put it this way. You need to be more like Todd Augustine and less like Ray Lewis, which means nothing to you, but I'll explain. (laughs) Todd Augustine uh, is the most tone deaf person I've ever known. When the song goes up, somehow he knows to go down and vice versa. It's very hard to sit next to him and sing all I do is match pitch, so I'm sitting next to him and I have no idea what pitch he's singing and it's confusing. But Todd sings because these truths have transformed his heart and so he sings. Now, Ray Lewis is a man I respect a great deal. He's a very godly man. But he, for whatever reason, at some point in his life had decided instead of singing in church, he was going to whistle in church. And it was kind of, it was, at first it was a charming thing and I, I still think it's a charming thing. It was nice. But he's actually missing out on the very thing that God's calling him to do. Now he stood and taught the word faithfully for years through his lectures, through his teaching. But when he's called to teach through song, he wasn't doing it because he wasn't participating in affirming these truths with his lips. Well, guys don't sing. I've been to concerts. Guys sing. They sing about what they're passionate about. I can't sing. I'm not very good. It'll just distract the people around me. I was more encouraged by Todd Augustine than by Robin Wiper, who sang for the Chicago Lyric Opera. So, through song, we teach and admonish one another now, in light of these first two points, you know the goal of our singing we're singing to one another—that the word of Christ would dwell richly amongst us. That there's a there's a teaching component to what's going on. Um, I, I want to tell you something, and, and make make a point here. Um, part part of the reason I'm giving the sermon is is a while back I got together with the, all the musicians of our church. Almost every one of them were able to be there. I think there were over 20 of us gathered in the room, and we just. I asked everyone to just go through the Bible and bring different passages and points to bear and say, what, what are the scriptures that are going to unite where we're going in music ministry? this really encouraging time for me as I heard from the different musicians and, and we got to dig into God's word and study together. And after that, somebody said, I think it was actually our deacon of worship, so Judy Brew came up to me and she said, I think we need to teach on this in church. And I said, well, Colossians 3.16 is coming up. Maybe I can do it then. But... In that conversation, I asked, I asked them, to, I divide them into small groups and I asked, biblically speaking, what's the most important instrument in, the mu- in, in our congregational worship? What's the most important music or instrument? And every group came back with the same answer. They either said the human voice or the congregation's voice. And that is a principle I think is spot on from this passage. And what that means is we want the collective voice of this congregation to be the thing that leaves its impression. So the music team right now is in the midst of doing certain things to try and bring that about. So carefully selecting songs that are more broadly known within the congregation that's singing it. When we introduce new songs, being more intentional about how we introduce those new songs so that we can teach the congregation how to sing that. And even some thoughts about instrumentation, how we go about instrumenting things so that we can highlight the voice of the congregation. Alright, so let's keep going. Our third observation is we are to sing a varied style. We are to sing a varied style. Why does he say with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Singing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, I'll tell you this first off. He's not saying we need to sing songs from the hymnal, and we need to sing new songs with psalms, or with hymns and spiritual songs. Because and I know this isn't a surprise to anybody, but they didn't have hymnals when he was writing this. And they certainly didn't have our hymnal when they were writing this. And they also didn't have Hillsong or David Crowder when he was writing this. They didn't even have Keith Green or Gloria Gaither when he was writing this. So when he's talking about these things, he's not saying we need to sing songs from the hymn book and songs that are not in the hymn book. Actually, when you dig into the words here, It moves from being real specific to real general. So psalms is a very specific word, very closely linked with the psalms of the Old Testament, which I think we would do well to sing. Then the next phrase, hymns, refers more broadly to Christ-adoring, doctrinal singing. And then the third word, songs, is the most generic word you could have for any kind of uh, musical, you know, number. And that's why he qualifies that one with spiritual. Spiritual being that which directs us to the word and to the exaltation of Christ. So we have these three very different words. It's as if he's saying, look, you've got to be singing across the styles. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What unites all those together, of course, is that they're all tied to the word of God and tied to the exaltation of Christ. So the word of Christ will dwell in you richly, right? But beyond that, it's showing the variety. Now, um, one of the things I love about this church is that it's an intergenerational church. Just for a second, look around at the people around you. There's some people who are old. There's some people who are young, And there's some people who are very young and there's some people who are very old and everything in between. No looking at... You too, behave yourselves. Let's not get personal now. In an intergenerational church, we can't just choose a little pocket of songs that are popular with a certain group of people and sing those songs and we all know them. Because the songs that one person knows... By heart are different than the songs that another person knows by heart. And so we actually have to learn to sing one another's songs. I love that phrase, I think it's beautiful to sing one another's songs. That takes humility, it takes saying, I think your needs are more important than mine, it takes deference. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel at work in our community. This community. Maple Avenue community. As we show our unity. Because we're singing one another's songs. What that means. Is that on any given Sunday. You will be singing a song you don't like. I will be singing a song I don't like. And probably someone on the music team leading that Sunday is singing a song they don't like. Now, I'm not talking about the lyrics and the truth, because that's got to be the uniting factor. But I'm talking about style and tempo and era. What needs to unite us is that we're singing truth together. And beyond that, we're going to sing each other's styles Well, let's look at our fourth observation. There is a manner in which we're to sing. You see what it is? Look there in verse 16. What is the manner in which we're to sing? With gratitude in your hearts. Our singing should be the overflow of a transformed heart. The proverbial cup that's full of water that you just bump it a little bit and what pours out from it is what's inside of it. A heart that's been transformed by the gospel and we gather together, it should overflow with singing with gratitude. So when I talk about singing truth to one another and teaching one another, we can't say check, check, check. I've done it as long as my lyrics are true and I affirm things that were true. This isn't an academy. We're not trying to pass a test. This is life and death. It's reality for us. I think of my mom, who grew up in what she would characterize as a dead Presbyterian church. That is a church where the gospel wasn't present and transforming lives. And I know the Presbyterian hymnals of that era. There is no doubt my mom was singing great truth. And was hearing others sing great truth. But when she became a Christian as a teenager. And then started going to church in college and after college. She went to a church that maybe didn't have the same richness in their theology of the singing. But the people all were singing with gratitude in their hearts. It was an overflow of their hearts. And she realized what was going on. And my mom, who is a lover of truth, if ever there was one, found herself drawn to this place where maybe the theology wasn't as rich, but where it was from their hearts when they sang. Now, there's different ways we all show that something's from our hearts, right? One person puts their hand way up in the air and is on their tippy toes and bouncing around because they're singing from their hearts. Another person gets very staid. And is reflective. And sings from their heart. So we're not going to judge how people sing from their hearts. And it doesn't have to look a certain way here. But we do need to sing from our hearts. The last observation is crucial. Notice who it is we sing to. The end of verse 16. Singing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We sing to God. Now, I talked earlier about this horizontal plane, right? We sing to one another. We're teaching and admonishing one another through our songs. But the Bible is always holding out both planes, both both. What's the word? Uh, Dimensions. Thank you. Both dimensions. And that's the reality. As we are singing to God, we are teaching and admonishing one another. And you'll notice in our hymnody, in our songs, we have lots of songs that address God directly. So um, we'll be singing one. Actually, we're going to be singing two songs after the sermon. One, called offering, which is spoken to God. And another one, come people of the risen king, which is spoken to one another. Sometimes within a psalm or within a song, you'll actually have both interspersed. So at one point you're talking to others, another point you're talking to God. We don't need to create an arbitrary distinction. Okay, now I will sing to other people. Now I will sing to God. You're doing both all the time, right? But notice in our hymnody, in our songs, In our psalms, you have both those dimensions. Now, there's an important implication to this. If we're singing to God, we're not putting on a show for man. The goal of our music isn't to make the people in the pew happy. I met once, some time ago, with a a guy who was a guru on church revitalization—how to take a church that's kind of lagging and a lull, inject some life into it—and I asked him, "What's the key? If you were to tell people one thing, what would it be?" And he said, "Change the music." Now, practically, he might be right. If you look at the churches that are big and exploding in growth, they usually have something going on musically that is captivating. But biblically, that kind of thinking plays into a wrong way of thinking about music. We're singing to God. We're not performing for man. Now that's not an excuse to do things poorly. It's not an excuse to only sing from one era. But it does mean that we need to remember who we're singing to. I think sometimes today we have overemphasized the vertical dimension to the exclusion of the horizontal dimension And so, one of the things that I I tried to do with the musicians and I think is important for us to grasp is is correct that, right? It's not just the me and God singing. But in correcting that, we don't want to overcompensate and start to swing the other way and think that we're just singing to one another and lose sight of the key vertical horizon. So, as a church, collectively... Where are we going with our music? This isn't all that the Bible has to say about music. But this verse is a great place to start. these five things are things that I hope that we all can see plainly from God's word that this is what Christ wants for our church in music. He wants the goal of our singing being that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. He wants us through song to be teaching and admonishing one another. He wants us to sing songs that are varied in style. He wants us to sing from our hearts. And he wants us to sing to God. Now I'm asking you this morning to commit to these five things. And a bunch of the other stuff that matters to you, that you care about, that strikes a chord in your heart, but which isn't so clear from God's word, to just loosen your grip upon. Say, yeah, I like these things. I like things a certain way. But I'm loosening my grip upon those things so that I can hold on tightly to the things that God has said are most important. Now, I don't say that lightly. I've met few people who love music as much as me. And sometimes it's hard for me if things aren't the way I want them. Because music plays such a big part of my life. And so I know that in the days and months and years ahead, as we build a music ministry around these things, that it, it's going to be hard for you to let go of certain things or to hold loosely to certain things. But I'm asking you prayerfully to do that. Now with that in mind, I also want to say, this is not a referendum and, or this isn't you know the time I'm going to present why we're going in all sorts of strange new directions with our music. I don't think you'll even notice big changes. Uh... If you look at these principles, a lot of them we've been following already, and it's just kind of fine-tuning. And so th- That's not why I'm preaching this sermon. I'm not like, okay, I'm going to be making a bunch of changes in music. I should probably preach on it first. No, it's just, here we are, 316. God has it that I should probably talk on what these principles are that are going to unite us. But I hope that a, our church, what will define our music program, are these five things and other things that are clear from God's word. As we do that, this thing that is called the worship wars that have caused divisions amongst Christians and even divisions within churches will actually at Maple Avenue be one of the crowns of our unity. Let's pray. God, as we sing together this morning, we sing to you. We teach and admonish one another. We sing from hearts that have been transformed. And we sing so that the word of Christ would dwell richly amongst us. So use our songs, even these two songs that we sing, sing now, varied in style, to that end. In Christ's name, amen.